The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Happy Tuesday and welcome or welcome back to the only true democracy and talk. First half in this hour, we're going to do two segments of Brit from the headlines and then uh, our guest on the second half of this hour. Stick around and don't miss it. Thank you for watching us. Thank you for listening to us wherever you watch, wherever you listen to the show. If you watch or listen live or if you get it uh, delayed later on, you know, podcast or you record it and listen or watch later. We appreciate you being a part of the Leslie Marshall Show uh, land, audience, family. Um, but let's kick it first off and check what is ripped. If the debt crisis roiling Washington were eventually to send the United States crashing into a recession, America's economy wouldn't sink alone. I mean, the repercussions of a first ever default on the federal debt would quickly reverberate around the world. Orders for Chinese factories that sell electronics to we here in the United States, well, that could dry up. Swiss investors who own U.S. treasuries would suffer losses. Sri Lankan companies could no longer deploy dollars as an alternative to their own dodgy currency. Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, says, quote, no corner of the global economy will be spared if the U.S. government defaulted and the crisis weren't solved, resolved quickly. Now, Zandi and two colleagues at Moody's have concluded that even if the debt limit were breached for no more than a week, the U.S. economy would weaken so much so fast as to wipe out roughly 1.5 million jobs. And that's not good for either party politically, Kevin McCarthy. And if a government default were to last much longer, well, into the summer, for example, the consequences far more dire. Zandi and his colleagues found in their analysis the U.S. economic growth would sink 7.8 million American jobs would vanish. Boom. Borrowing rates would jump. The unemployment rate would soar from the current 3.4 to 8 percent. A stock market plunge would erase 10 trillion in household wealth. Now, there are some, even a corner of my mind, that thinks Republicans want this because they want anything to get power. They want anything to have control of the Senate and certainly control of that House, that seat the White House, the Oval Office seat, the presidency. But at the same time, we know the rich write more checks to Republicans than Democrats. Republicans always have tax breaks for the rich. And this would screw the rich and the middle class and the poor. And they get votes from all of those, but they get checks from that upper echelon, the rich of the rich, right? Now, of course, it might not come to that. I'm going to bet it doesn't unless Republicans are on a suicide mission. Because you're the party in power in the House, you are going to get blamed. Joe Biden isn't going to be blamed. The people that are already blaming Joe Biden aren't going to vote for him anyway. Now, the White House and House Republicans are seeking a breakthrough. They concluded a round of debt limit negotiations this past Sunday over the weekend. They have plans 
uh, to resume more talks um, uh, this week. Yesterday, they were supposed to talk again. Republicans threatened to let the government default on its debt by refusing to raise the statutory limit on what it can borrow. By the way, how many times did they raise the debt limit during the Trump years? So this is purely political. Let's call it what it is. And they said this unless President Joe Biden, the Democrats accept sharp spending cuts and others' concessions. So it does come down to who blinks, but we all get screwed. Even rich people get screwed if somebody doesn't start blinking. And by the way, clearly, again, Republicans are doing this. Uh, this is political, completely political, because they did raise the debt ceiling during the Trump era, and they're holding our government hostage to get what they want, much like a crying child at Target is stomping their feet until they get their toy. Now, feeding the anxiety is the fact that so much financial activity hinges on confidence that America is going to pay, pay its financial obligations. This is a worldwide issue. Its debt long viewed as an ultra-safe asset, as a foundation of global commerce, built in decades of trust in the United States. Now, a default could shatter $24 trillion market for Treasury debt. That could cause to freeze up and ignite an international crisis. This is what Eswar Prasad, professor of trade policy at Cornell University and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution says, Cornell, fourth in the nation for academics, quote, a debt default would, would be a cataclysmic event with an unpredictable but probably dramatic fallout on U.S. and global financial markets. Now, the threat emerged just as the world economy is contending with a huge amount of threats from surging inflation and interest rates to the ongoing repercussions of Russia's invasion of Ukraine to the tightening grip of authoritarian regimes. And on top of all that, many countries have grown skeptical that we have outsized our role in global finance. And in the past, American political leaders really generally managed to step away from the brink, raise the debt limit before it was too late. Congress has raised, revised, or extended the borrowing cap 78 times since 1960, most recently, 2021. Yet the problem is worsened. Partisan divisions in Congress have widened. The debt has grown over years after rising spending and deep cuts. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned the government could default as soon as June 1st if lawmakers don't raise or suspend the ceiling. And Maurice Obsfeld, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, said, quote, if the trustworthiness of treasuries would become impaired for any reason, it would send shockwaves through the system and have immense consequences for global growth. Holy God, this thing is so long. I can't read this whole thing, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> it's just so long um, and uh, very hard for me to cut and paste with my eyes while I'm broadcasting. So we got to cut these down. Um, uh, anyway, uh, given the perceived safety uh, government debts, treasury bills, bonds and notes carry a whisk or a weighting of zero in international bank regulations. Foreign governments and private investors hold nearly $7.6 of the debt. That's roughly 31% of the treasury in financial markets. I don't know where to cut and paste here, so I'm going to cut to the chase. Um, even though we were the problem, we the United States, we basically, Clay Lowry said, still had a flate to uh, qualify. He oversees research at the Institute of International Finance, a banking trade group. In other words, the dollar is king. So if the U.S. were to pierce the debt limit without resolving the dispute and the Treasury defaulted on its payments, Zandi suggests the dollar would once again rise, at least initially, because of the uncertainty and the fear. Global investors just wouldn't know where to go, he says, but where they always go when there's a crisis. And that's back to us. So I don't want to go to Vegas on this, but I think that they're going to do something. The debt ceiling drama is sure to heighten questions about the enormous financial power of the United States and the dollar. So Republicans are shooting themselves 
and America on a worldwide stage in the foot with their hostage holding of our nation and our nation's finances and debt or not raising that ceiling. Let's rip another. Here's Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat, outlining Republican carelessness and hypocrisy when it comes to the debt ceiling. I again want to emphasize a really important difference. It's not just both sides saying this or that. The Democrats, President Biden is not saying that if he doesn't get his way on how we reduce the deficit over a period of time, that he's going to blow up the economy. That's the difference. Speaker McCarthy and the MAGA Republicans are threatening to blow up the economy if we don't do things exactly their way. Republicans won't accept one penny in deficit reduction from closing tax loopholes. The farce of this whole thing is that under Donald Trump, we raised the debt ceiling three times. 40% of our national debt actually was accumulated during the four years of the Trump administration. And now, and now they're not willing to talk about any revenue from very wealthy people as part of this effort. And uh, again, uh, like I said, that was Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen. I like him a lot. Democrat outlining the Republican carelessness and hypocrisy when it comes to the debt ceiling. Look, um, I think there are a lot of Americans, you watching, you listening, that I roll at a lot of these debt uh, ceiling increase negotiation. We're on the brink of doom and destruction, talks, drama. Uh, I roll about all of that. And the reason is because this happens every year, right? If not every year, every other year, right? Every couple of years, and that's why the debt ceiling has been raised 78 times. And some people say, well, we need to do it differently. Well, the problem is coming up in the 11th hour with a way to do it differently is not only ridiculous, it, it, it's pure stupidity and a lack of proper uh, planning. And, um, you know, you, you now, you know, for years from now, come up with how we're going to do it differently, Right. And then there are stopgap measures we've seen, though, and that's what happens, right? They do stopgap after stopgap after stopgap, and then they come up with something, and they usually do so what? When an election is over, <laughs> right? So because, you know, they got an election coming up, um, you know, they, 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 want to, they, they want to take advantage of it's the economy stupid and Joe Biden is low approval ratings, especially on the economy, not looking at the fact that the election is um, a long way away, Right. Um, and, uh, the, yeah, the election is a long way away. Where are we? We're in 2023, May, 2023. And the election, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't it November of 2024? Last time I checked. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, um, it, it's sad that this drama has to influence so many Americans stress level. We just don't need that. Right. I can speak to that. I have more stress right now than I care to. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's part A, or the first segment of what's ripped from the headlines. We'll be back with the second segment of Ripped right after this. Don't go away. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Part two of Ripped from the Headlines in this second half of the first hour on the only true democracy in talk. Now, absent new, more ambitious climate policies, the world is headed for a magnitude of climate change. That would put about 2 billion, with a B, people at risk of extreme heat by the end of the century. That's what a new study finds. Now, why does this matter? Well, if you uh, limit global warming to the Paris Agreement's target of 1.5 centigrade, which is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels, that would yield a five-fold reduction in the population exposed to unprecedented heat by the end of this century. Now, the nearly 2.16 Fahrenheit increase in global average surface temps to date has already knocked more than 600 million people 
out of the humic climate niche in which society has historically thrived. The researchers of the study, which was published yesterday in Nature Sustainability, define that niche by looking at how human population density varies with temperature and precipitation. The intrigue is that they find two peaks in population density, one associated with a mean annual temperature of about 55.4 degrees Fahrenheit, the other tied to more tropical climates, 80.6 degrees Fahrenheit as an example. And outside of these temperatures, conditions tend to be either too wet or dry or too hot or cold for high concentrations of people to thrive, the study states. So here's what they're saying, quote, the human climate niche niche shows how human population density varies with average temperature and average precipitation. That is Tim Lenton. He is the study lead author, director of the University of Exeter's Global Systems Institute. Further, he says, quote, it thus shows the temperature and rainfall levels we flourish most at and how population density drops moving away from those peaks. So if you read between the lines on this, researchers sought to shed light on the current and projected human toll of climate change. Unprecedented heat exposure is defined as having a mean annual air temp of 84.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Scientists found that correlated with more frequent spikes to greater than 104 degrees Fahrenheit, and potentially lethal wet bulb temps of greater than 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Wet bulb temps incorporate humidity. And once they climb to about 95 degrees Fahrenheit, they can cause potentially fatal heat-related illness. They impede the body's human body's ability to cool itself through sweat. Of note, the study found that if countries only meet existing emissions reductions based on current policies of warming to reach by 4.8% uh, Fahrenheit, uh, the top five countries most vulnerable to unprecedented heat based on the number of people exposed would be India, Nigeria, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Pakistan. In other words, poor nations. So rich people don't care about them. In this scenario, up to a third of humanity would be exposed to set. When you see like United States, you know, EU in that list, then you're going to get more attention and you're going to see more checks written and more research. In this scenario, up to a third of humanity would be exposed to such extreme heat and be well outside the human climate niche, the study found. Yes, but the heat would not hold off until the end of the century, ratcheting up noticeably over time. The study concludes that for every 0.18 Fahrenheit increase in global average surface temps, Another 140 million people will be exposed to dangerous heat. The big picture here, extreme heat this week illustrates the challenges that countries are already facing. Temperatures in Delhi, India reached 105.7 on uh, yesterday. Uh, heat waves already have toppled monthly and all-time records across swaths of Asia during April into May. Scientists have tied that in part to human-caused climate change. Other studies point to the dangers of temperatures hitting intolerable limits. That challenges humans' physiological abilities to withstand those conditions and, uh, and with increasing frequency. The bottom line, unless nations take more stringent, stringent excuse me, actions to rein in global greenhouse gas emissions, extreme heat will only get more dangerous and prevalent. Let's rip another. State legislators around the country have passed more laws expanding gun access, and they have measures on gun control in the year since the Uvalde, Texas mass shooting. That shooting left 19 children and two teachers dead. And this information is according to an Axios analysis of data provided by the Giffords Center. By the numbers, more than 1,700 gun-related bills have been introduced in state legislatures since the Uvalde shooting. 93 of them were signed into law. Of those, 56% expanded access to firearms have benefited the firearms industry by allowing manufacturing in the state or protecting them from liability lawsuits. Arkansas passed seven such laws. That's the most of any state. About 44% of the bills passed restrictive access to firearms or supported victims, potential victims in gun-related cases. Uh, Washington, the state of Washington, passed eight such laws. In 14 of 17 states, if we zoom in, 
The uh, They only enacted bills loosening gun restrictions. Republicans control both chambers of the legislature and the governor's office in 14 of those 17 states. And the other three of those 17, Kansas, Kentucky, and North Carolina, they have GOP-controlled legislatures, but Democratic governors. Zoom out for a sec. Axios Review found that some bills aimed at protecting gun access that passed were so-called financial privacy bills. Those measures make it harder to track gun sales by barring merchants from using gun-specific codes and credit card billing. Other successful bills from highly rated NRA legislators prevented government entities from doing business with businesses that boycott the firearms industry. Other bills also made the state government funds divest of any ESG funds. So what they're saying well, Rudy Espinoza Murray of Moms Demand Action here in California, they're a gun safety advocacy group. They told Axios about the trend of laws expanding gun access, and they said it's a mistake. It's costing lives. It's really that simple. We're not trying to restrict access for responsible gun owners. What we're really trying to do is ensure that guns don't end up in the wrong hands. Espinoza Murray said the toll on families of gun violence victims is hard when common sense gun proposals don't pass. And, and, and they said, but we tell them we just have to keep on going. The intrigue here is in a rare move, Republicans and Democrats did come together in New Mexico recently with a measure that made it a felony to purchase a firearm for someone who was prohibited from possessing one. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, uh, a Democrat, signed that measure last month. And of note, the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, Gabby Giffords Place, released a report yesterday after spending time in Uvalde with the victims' families, trying to assess what was needed after the shooting. The group is recommending more safety laws, fighting structural racism and reforming victims' compensation systems. The other side, well, the NRA, which has opposed most gun control measures, did not respond to a request for comment. Big surprise. Let's rip another. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy uh, issued a warning today that social media poses a threat to kids' mental health, escalating calls for new safeguard aimed at minors. I don't mean to be rude, but like, did you really need like a degree in rocket science to figure that out? I have two teenagers. I have no medical degree, and I'm sorry, but any moron knows that. Seriously, can you not figure that out? We need to have studies for this. We're, I mean, look at our kids. Look at the rate of teen suicide. Anorexia. Uh, the, 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 the bullying, the body shaming. The, I mean, the list goes on. So why does this matter? Well, the advisory adds to scrutiny over the effects of excessive use and harmful content, which has been blamed for consequences ranging from disrupting kids' sleep to promoting suicidal thoughts. And, uh, they, the, you, know, uh, you know, he told uh, that he's calling on policymakers, platforms, and parents to create safe limits. He previously said he believes age 13 is too early for kids to join social media. Sadly, I think my kids have been on social media since around 13, definitely 14. The White House is concurring, uh, current, uh, concurrently releasing plans that include creating an interagency task force in kids' online safety, establishing best practices for teaching digital literacy and habits and supporting efforts to stymie harassment and child abuse online. He said what kids are experiencing today on social media is unlike anything prior generations have had to contend with. And the American Psychological Association called on them last year to warn about the potential risks. Uh, just uh, terrible. We're watching federal lawmakers. They've been eyeing various responses. And at the state level, some people are doing stuff as well. I'm Leslie Marshall. This was Rick from Our guest right here, right after this. Don't go away. 
We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. We welcome back Jessica Levinson. Uh, She is professor at Loyola Law School, legal contributor for CBS News, columnist for MSNBC, and host of the Passing Judgment podcast. Jessica's Twitter is on, uh, Twitter handle is, our handle on Twitter is, at Levins on Jessica. Levins and Jessica, or Levins on Jessica. L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N, Jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A. You also can find her podcast, Passing Judgment, by searching it on the webpage, podcast.apple.com. Jessica, welcome, or welcome back, I should say. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. I think I'm going to change it to Levin's On. It sounds better than Levinson, right? (laughs) Well, I kind of read it that way, but then I'm like, it is also Levinson. So yeah, yeah, like Levin's On Jessica, you know, like I'm on. Um, So much uh, to talk about, and I appreciate with us, we have at least uh, half the show to talk about it here. Uh, trying to go back and forth uh, to read this. Let me see. Um, The writers group uh, PEN America and the publisher Penguin Random House have sued a Florida school district, and they're suing over its removal of books about race and and uh, uh, LGBTQ uh, plus identity. Sorry, my migraine is still affecting my eyesight. Uh, the latest opposition to a policy central to government DeSantis' agenda as he prepares uh, to run for president. These are going to be, I would imagine, there's going to be an escalation of these throughout the state, I would imagine, right? Because there are a lot of people, I'm a parent of two teens, my kids go to school, and there's a belief, I think, among many people, and it transcends uh, political ideology, uh, which is, you know, you tell us that we, the parents, need to make decisions for ourselves. Um but you're you're not making you're not letting us make those decisions. You're removing books that maybe some of us want our children uh, to read, and and it's just amazing because I was looking yesterday at Florida, and even though they will do well on public school rankings, if you if you look between the weeds there, um, they're very low on learning, and they're very low on literacy. You know what I mean? So their schools may be good because their cafeteria has clean tables or something. But you know what I'm saying? Um, this is uh, hurting their children. And we know knowledge is power. So I know you're going to speak to the legality of this. Um, uh, you know, is this a Pandora's box in a sense the governor has opened upon himself with the the, the book banning love that he and his right wing evangelicals seem to adore? I think so. If for no other reason, then it's what we really worry about when it comes to the First Amendment and the freedom of speech, which is the government basically picking winners and losers. So, you know, Leslie, as you know, the freedom of speech is actually narrower than what most people think. It doesn't protect us against other private citizens. It protects us against the government, excuse me, and against the government saying, you can say this and you can't say this, Or what I think the book banning laws really get to is you can hear this or you cannot hear that. By banning those books, it not only prevents those authors from speaking to us, but it also prevents us from hearing them. And the First Amendment is fundamentally not just about speech, but also the ability to listen. And that's what I think will be argued in this case when... um, random house and when they this suit continues which is you're harming people's ability to hear and yes is it a pandora's box i think so i just saw a article this morning in preparing for our conversation that most of these 
book bans are actually the result of a few people going to school boards and saying, I'm looking at this new law. In this case, I think it's based on the quote, don't say gay law. And I think that these books violate the standards. So I think you should take them off the shelves. Florida is a really interesting case because in that situation, I think the school board is actually going against what the um, what the experts had said basically would be permissible for kids these age and would be appropriate for kids in these age groups. Well, what kills me is when I'm looking at list of books in red states like Florida, you know, whether it's Rosa Parks or Hillary Clinton or the Holocaust, that really frightens me. I mean, if if you think about it, and I, and I can't stand when people uh, compare to the Holocaust, but I got to compare book wise. You know, Kristallnacht was a night of book banning. Uh, the Nazis basically wanted to erase every Jewish author. Now, certainly Ron DeSantis, the state of Florida, and governors and state legislatures in conservative red states aren't doing that. But to me, it's almost like I'm so afraid my child might be LGBTQ, right, that I don't want them to have access to anything that mentions, you know, uh, you know, in any 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 word of this world, you know, of, of these, of these people. But I, and I, and I don't understand wanting to, you know, erase, uh, the, the, the ugly parts of our history. And we have some very ugly parts that we continue to have some very ugly parts of, uh, in this nation, whether what we did to native Americans, what we did to Japanese Americans, in world war II with internment, what we did to Irish Americans, Italian Americans, and especially, uh, what we did to African Americans with slavery, what we've done to women, um, uh, what we've done to children, and what they're trying to do in some states again with child labor. I mean, the, the list just goes on. Um, so, you know, but to me, it comes down to that four letter word um, fear. Does that seem to be what this is based on? Does it seem to be like if we don't say it and we don't tell it, then it doesn't exist, which is absolutely ludicrous. You know, I mean, is this is this what they what they want? I mean, I wanted to tell folks what this federal lawsuit alleges that the Escambia County School Board District and its school board are violating the First Amendment through the removal of 10 books from library shelves, as you said. Um, also, the case does not name the governor. Right. The case does not name him uh, specifically. So if you could speak to those th two things, do these various bannings seem to come out of fear? And how come the governor's not mentioned in the case? So. Yes, in my mind, trying to basically remove part of our nation's history, part of our nation's society, that does come from fear. I mean, if there's one thing that historians always tell us is that if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. And the, typically speaking, I mean, it's so trite, but the more knowledge, the better. Now, we're not telling people you must read these books. We're saying that they're available to you. Leslie, one thing you mentioned when you were talking about fear, and I was thinking about Florida, and I was thinking about another suit that I was just reading about this morning regarding Florida, which is a suit by, I believe it's a restaurant chain called Hamburger Mary's, and they're suing the yeah. state of Florida over their bill that says that minors can't go to drag performances. And in my view, it's the same kind of fear of, we can't expose children to different types of performances. We can't expose children to literature involving LGBTQ characters. We can't expose children to uncomfortable parts of our nation's history. And 
it does seem to me one in part fear, but I also think obviously it's a political strategy to try and create a you know, big wedge cultural issue. I, I don't know what you think, but it strikes me that that's not really what a lot of people vote on. What people vote on is what's affecting my daily life, what's affecting my pocketbook. And if you think about Governor DeSantis's policies here, one of those policies has caused Disney basically not to move to Florida um, for one of their offices to stay in California. That's going to have a real impact on people's pocketbooks. Oh, yeah. 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 Job creation, uh, more money coming to the state, more people that go to Disney, the more people that stay at hotels around Disney in Orlando and Kissimmee, Florida and places like that. You know, the other day on Facebook, something popped up, but I thought it was very valid. Bugs Bunny is dressed in drag. Victor Victoria, the movie with Julie Andrews. Mrs. Doubtfire, Robin Williams. Um, there are so, and, and those are just a few examples. Um, there are so many examples where people have yentl, uh, where people have dressed in, in drag or, pe- you know, people have dressed as another gender uh, for the plot line, for the storyline. And, you know, people like I grew up watching Bugs Bunny dressed in drag and, you know, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not dressing in drag, you know, or, you know, it, it, it didn't mess me up or, you know, whatever they think, um, you know, but it, it, it is actually very remarkable that they, the Republicans especially, seem to care so much about this but they don't seem to care about children that are abused, children that are homeless, children that need health care, children that need to be adopted, uh, children that need health after you force the mother to have that child. I mean, the list just goes on. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about this. We have another subject to discuss with Jessica. Jessica Levinson is our guest professor at Loyola Law School, legal contributor for CBS News. Congrats on that, by the way. Uh, I think that happened since last time we talked. Columnist for MSNBC. That's kind of weird. Column, uh, contributor for CBS News, columnist for MSNBC. Usually it's all in the same family, right? And check out her Passing Judgment podcast. She's the host of it. It's great. You can find it on podcast.apple.com. Search for it at that webpage. And follow her on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N, Jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A. We'll be back with her, back with you, right after this. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest is Jessica Levinson, professor at Loyola Law School, legal contributor for CBS News, columnist for MSNBC, and host of the Patching Judgment podcast. You can follow her on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N-J-E-S-S-I-C-A. And you can find her podcast, Passing Judgment, by searching on the podcast.apple.com webpage. Uh, Jessica, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Uh, before we get to uh, our next, uh, next subject, when we're talking about uh, the writers group Pen America and the publisher uh, Penguin Random House suing Florida uh, in a specifically a school district uh, with the, you know, the uh, First Amendment, um, you know, as their shield, if you will. And um, a couple of things from your perspective, uh, you know, as a legal professional with your legal expertise, um, how likely is this to be successful? And if it is, are we going to see many suits follow and not just in the state of Florida? I think there is a real there there in this suit, in part because it's pretty clear which types of books are being targeted. So let's be clear that school districts can create some community norms, and you certainly do not have to, and in fact shouldn't stock every book that is available. Um, The question here isn't 
are these books obscene? The question in my mind is, are you targeting books because they involve characters who are racial minorities? Are you targeting books because they involve characters that are um, have LGBTQ status? And that to me is what pushes this over the edge. Now, will we see other uh, similar suits? Yes, I think it depends, of course, on what happens in this case. And um, in this case, again, what I think is particularly helpful for those challenging the book bans is that the school district seems to be going against the advice of the experts who are saying, no, these books are age appropriate. These books are actually within our community standards. And um, so this could be one of the First Amendment fights that we continue to have. And um, again, it'll be this, it'll be the drag performances. There's another First Amendment suit right now that was just filed, I think last night or this morning, that uh, involves TikTok suing Montana for trying to ban that app. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of First Amendment activity right now. Also 14th Amendment activity in this, right? Because um, the suit also argues that the school officials violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Can you speak to that? Not everybody knows the Constitution, you know, front and, and, and uh, backward, upside down and, you know, well, all around. Absolutely. So part of the Constitution, a lot of people know there's this thing called equal protection. There is an equal protection clause in the 14th Amendment. It applies to the federal government, to states, to localities. And it says that you have to treat similarly situated people in the same way. So the government can discriminate, but it can't discriminate if people are similarly situated. And when we get really concerned about discrimination is when you discriminate on the basis of race, of national origin, of membership in a language minority. And it, to get back to our case here, what we're really worried about is that, again, government targeting of certain books because there are racial minorities who are characters in the book or people of LGBTQ status. So it looks like you're targeting certain classifications essentially for different treatment. That's at its most basic level what we're worried about here. And it's absolutely ridiculous because at a certain age, these kids, uh, to me, have access with their phones or their tablets or their laptops to things that um, are far more dangerous, if that's what they think the, this is, than these books, because they have visual, right? They have video. Right. I mean, it is kind of this weird Alice in Wonderland where we're pretending that the only place that kids have access to information is in a school library. And of course, as you point out, that's far from the case. Definitely. I had touched upon a little foreshadowing of what we were going to talk about um, uh, youth labor. And, you know, th this makes my skin crawl. I, I, I mean, you know, there was a time when children didn't go to school and they were working in factories and they were working in horrific, uh, horrifically inhumane conditions until uh, unions changed that. And um, there is a youth labor law in the state of Iowa. Um, the feds are saying that it would violate federal rules and fed Trump's state um, let's talk about this. This is for people that aren't aware of this. Um, they are allowing in the state of Iowa children to work in certain jobs at certain ages, certain hours. And some of those hours are late at night, right after regular uh, business yeah. hours. Uh, so to, uh, tell folks about this who aren't aware of this. And yes, this is happening in 2023 in the United States of America. I really feel our nation 
in so many areas is going backwards. What we just talked about in Florida with the books and other places in the school districts throughout the country, and certainly this as well. I was really kind of startled when um, you contacted me and we were talking about what we were going to talk about because in part, I used to teach, or last night was my first class for constitutional law. And one of the things I teach is exactly what you said. When there's a conflict between the federal law and a state law, federal law trumps. And one of the first cases going back to, I believe, the late 20s, early 1930s is about child labor. And it feels to my students like it's absolutely ancient history. It would never happen again. And here we are having this conversation today. It really is kind of remarkable that we're talking about the federal standards for child labor. But I know you're having me on to, you know, give the legal perspective here. And the legal perspective is if you have a valid federal law, which you do, the federal law very validly sets the standards, says states, you basically can't go beyond this, meaning you can't make conditions worse for children when it comes to being participants in the labor market. The federal law kind of sets that floor you can't go below that floor. That's what I was trying to do. So I see exactly what you're looking for legally for a conflict, a valid federal law, a true conflict between the federal law and a state law. And that means we know what happens. So many legal questions are gray. This one is not gray. It means that the state law has to give way and um, it has to be declared invalid. Again, we haven't looked at every aspect of the case, but broad brush, um, that's what happens when you have two laws that conflict. You know, anybody with an ounce of common sense, I mean, you know, went to school for five minutes, knows that, you know, federal Trump state, why would the state even try this A and B? Why, why would anybody want child labor? I mean, let's be honest here, okay? Let's let's pull the curtain back at Oz. and. What what children are they talking about that would enter the labor force? These are ch- most likely migrant children who they're trying to stop from coming over the border into their states. I mean, this is beyond hypocrisy at its finest, and in my opinion, even questionable child abuse. So, it, I mean, it, it does just feel so strange that we're having this argument about how much children can work below, again, the federal standards. And, you know, in in terms of kind of, I think you've laid out the politics of, of what might be happening here, but in terms of why would they do this? I mean, I think that we're increasingly seeing lawmakers do this where they're making a political argument through the legislative process. And um, we have seen for decades now, we have seen that there are certain constituents who say, Basically, government, get into my business for some areas, but get out of my business when it comes to anything economic. And that includes this thing called the freedom to contract and the ability to send your children out to work, sometimes for long hours, sometimes in situations where we think that that is not safe. And the federal government, as a policy matter, has said, we think this is not safe. It transgresses our society's norms. Uh, But here we are having this conversation. And stop the people coming over the border who will take these jobs. And this is obviously we know this must be one of the reasons we don't have the labor force that, you know, we, that we used to have. Um, we have like 90 seconds left. So not only on this topic, Iowa, but on Florida, you know, t- tell our listeners what you want them to come away with and our viewers. So I think what we need to come away with is um, 
when we think about, let's take the First Amendment, when we think about the First Amendment, what we're most worried about the government silencing is speech that they don't like. And that's what we have to be on alert for in Montana, in Florida, when it comes to the book banning, in Florida, when it comes to the drag performances, which is why is the government trying to take this speech out of the public sphere? That's what I really want people to be on alert for. Why do they not want me to hear this? That's exactly, again, the type of censorship that we worry about. When it comes to the child labor laws, I mean, I think what we need to look at is, is this going to try and go beyond Iowa or will this immediately be shut down by the courts? Because if it's immediately shut down, I don't think that we see any sort of pattern. We don't see other states trying to go there. And frankly, I haven't heard of other states trying to go there. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jessica. It went by really fast, but always knowledgeable. And uh, I I learn something every time you're on. So thank you for that. Uh, Jessica Levinson, like I said, she is professor at Loyola Law School, a legal contributor for CBS News, columnist for MSNBC, and host of the Passing Judgment podcast. If you go to podcast.apple.com, you can search for it at that webpage. Just search for Passing Judgment and check it out. It's a great podcast. And on Twitter, follow her there at Levinson Jessica, L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N Jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A. Thank you once again, Jessica. Thank you, America, for tuning in, listening and watching and learning. I'm Leslie Marshall.